We are going to be in a couple of different places this morning. You can find Genesis 3 and 1 Corinthians 15. And we are, we are in a series right now, uh, concluding a series this week called The Three Circles, which is an evangelism strategy. It's a tool um, that the North American Mission Board has, has put out there. That it was conceived, as I mentioned last week, down in West Palm Beach, Florida, and um, we, uh, with Jimmy Scroggins and Family Church. And we are using that tool, and we are doing a three-week series. This is week three of a three-week series uh, on the three circles, and I want to explain that here in just a moment. And then not next week, no small groups next week, but week after next, right, two weeks from today, we'll launch training sessions and how you can use the three circles and share your faith in our small group time. And that will begin in this room at 930, two weeks from the day, and hope you'll be a part of that. So let's do a little quick review. If you're new with us or haven't been here in a few weeks, this will help you catch up, okay? So we're talking about the three circles. And what we're talking about is the idea that, first of all, God is the creator of everything, and he has designed the world to work a certain way. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2 a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about how God has a design for all of life. He created us to live in relationship with him. He created us to live for his glory, for his purposes, to do life with him. And that we looked all the way back there in Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw that we've been made in the image of God. We're stewards of God's creation. We're his representatives on earth, his image bearers. And he's got a, a plan or a design for marriage, for work, for really every facet of life to be lived in relationship with him. But from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3, we find out man has departed that plan. And we know it. We, we see it around us today. We know the world is not walking in perfect unity and harmony today. We know we don't live in a perfect world. And that is because sin happened. Man departed from God's design, rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, we see. And ever since then, we've all been born in sin with the nature that's bent towards sin. We're born sinners, and as soon as we're given opportunity, we choose to sin, and we're sinners by nature and by choice. We constantly find ourselves ignoring God's design, not living life to His glory, not living in relationship with Him, not obeying Him. And that leads to all this brokenness that we see in the world today. And we see brokenness everywhere. We see it in wars and rumors of wars. We see it in poverty and drugs and broken marriages and broken homes. We see it all over. We see it in loneliness and despair and all sorts of different ways. We see the effects of our sin in living in a fallen world, brokenness all around us. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Now, last week we saw when we left off with Adam and Eve, uh, they had, we saw them after they had sinned in the Garden of Eden, they began to try to hide from God and they clothed themselves in fig leaves. And in the midst of all that, of them hiding from God and clothing themselves in fig leaves because they know they've done something wrong and they feel this weird thing called guilt and shame and fear that they had never felt before, God comes looking for them. And that's good news. The good news of the Bible is that while even though we're made in God's image and to live for Him and worship Him and even though we've sinned against Him and rebelled against Him, that God pursues sinners. That's the best news of the world. That our holy and just God is also a loving and gracious God and it is in His nature to pursue and to chase after sinners. And so we saw last week that we will do all sorts of things to try to escape our brokenness, just like Adam and Eve does with those fig leaves. Trying, they know something's wrong and they're just trying to fix it. We'll do that with religion and morality. Some people do it with darker things like drugs, 
relate with relationships one to the other. All sorts of different ways we try to drown it out. Money, you name it. And what we're learning, though, is that we can't make our way out of it. We can't make our way to God. We can't make things better. We need God to make things better. We need God to come to us. And that is the good news of the Bible. And that is the good news that we call, that God calls, the gospel. The gospel. That is what we're talking about this morning. And in Genesis 3, we see some hints of this gospel. It'll be on the screen for you this morning. In Genesis 3.15, when God curses the snake, the serpent, Satan, he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." And then down a few verses later in Genesis 3.21, the Bible says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now here's why we have those two verses. It's one is a promise of the gospel and one is a picture of the gospel. We have a promise in 3.15 that he, a particular offspring of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to destroy the work of Satan. He's going to have his bru heel bruised, right? And this is what happens on the cross, right? Jesus endures pain. Jesus endures suffering. Satan's work is destroyed. So it's a promise of the gospel all the way back from the beginning in G Genesis 3.15 because the cross and the coming of Christ wasn't plan B. It wasn't something that caught God off guard. It was plan A, all right? From the very beginning, from the moment God breathed life into Adam and Eve. He knew what would happen. He knew that he would send his son. He knew that he was going to purchase for himself a people. Nothing escaped his notice. And then in verse 21, we get a picture of the gospel. In God making the garments and clothing them, we get a picture here. God made the animal skins. Salvation is God's plan. Their fig leaves weren't enough. They couldn't cover themselves. They needed God to cover them. And we would see later that animal sacrifice all through the Old Testament would point to our need for a redeemer and the need for a sacrifice, for the need for the innocent to die for the sake of the guilty to go free. But it's going to require a human sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice, because the blood of animals, the Bible tells us, cannot wash away our sins. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the Bible tells us. And we see God is the one that clothed them because salvation is a work of His. We can't cover our sin, our shame, our guilt. We need God to do so. So all the way back in Genesis, we see this good news of the Bible. That though we are sinners deserving punishment for our sin, though we are born enslaved to our sin and separated from a relationship with God, that God is a redeemer and God is chasing after sinners. And this good news, the Bible, is what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. And it's most fully revealed in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, is the announcement of what God has done to save sinners. It's the declaration. It, it's the proclamation of something that has been done already in the past. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote a struggling church. Corinth had problems. You think our churches today have problems. It's nothing, to, nothing new under the sun, right? They had problems too, a lot like we see in churches today. And Paul wrote this struggling church. And in chapter 15, he wrote what is really the most extensive, greatest chapter on the resurrection in all the Bible. 
And in the first eight verses there, he reminds them of what this good news is. So look with me, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. We're going to focus on the first four verses this morning. Paul says to the Corinthians, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, died. And in verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we see a lot about the gospel here in these first 15 verses, eight verses of chapter 15. And what we learn some, as we analyze this, we learn some things about what we need to know and understand and how we need to respond to the gospel. And some very important things, some handles for us this morning to grab hold of with this good news. The first thing I want you to understand is you need to know the gospel. People need to know the gospel. I need to know the gospel. Your neighbor needs to know the gospel. And by know, I mean you need to hear it and you need to understand it. Uh, you need to hear it, but you need to more than hear it. You need to understand it. And to understand it, you've got to hear it and have it explained to you. People need to know the gospel. Notice Paul says there in the first verse there, I'm reminding you, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you. They have already heard it. He's preached it to them, and now he's reminding them of it. He's repeating himself, in other words, because he wants them to know and understand it deeply. And so he's reminding them of it. Even Christians, even if you've been a Christian for years, you need to hear and constantly be reminded of the gospel. The gospel is not just how we come to faith in Christ. It's also how we grow and mature and continue in our faith in Christ as we apply the gospel truth. We never outgrow the gospel. We never go on from the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel and continue to, in that posture of repentance and faith, to understand and apply it. Notice Paul is recounting, though, how they became Christians when you read those first couple of verses there. And it's all about the gospel. He had preached it to them. And then down in verse 10, he even says, we preached, you believe, right? So they, for anything could happen, he talks also in verse 3 about delivering it to them. That there had to be, a, trans, there had to be a, a, a movement of content from one mouth to another, from one mind to another, from one heart to another. Information had to be passed. They had to know it. They had to hear it. Because no one, no one gets saved. No one escapes brokenness. No one escapes sin and the consequences of their sin apart from hearing the gospel. You have to hear it and know it. Paul preached it to them. He had proclaimed it to them. In Romans 1.16, the Bible tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul writing to the Romans. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul wrote to the, to the Romans and he said, Listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm bold with the gospel. I'm not shy to talk about the gospel. I'm not fearful of what people think about me because of the gospel. I'm not worried about looking a certain way when I talk about the gospel because, here's why, it's the power of God unto salvation. If that be true, why would I be ashamed of the gospel? He's saying it is the power of God. It's not just powerful. He's saying the power of God is there in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. 
It's the gospel and the gospel only that brings about rescue and deliverance from God's wrath and slavery to sin and from death. In Romans 10, 7, Paul goes on to write to the Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People have to hear the gospel to, talk, to do what we're going to talk about here in a minute, which is believe the gospel. No one believes it without first hearing it. Let me ask you, have you ever played one of that, that game uh, where you get in the room, you play at school, uh, and everybody's got the big circle, and you start a message. Somebody whispers a message in somebody's ear, and where nobody else can hear it. And then they go over, and they whisper it, and then they whisper it. And after you make it around 20 or 30 people, and then they say, okay, what was the message you heard? And what was the message you started? And it'll be radically different. You ever done that? It, it, just, it, it gets weird. It's humorous, really, how crazy it gets. And that's because we don't hear things, and so we fill in the gap. You can only say it once, right? We miscommunicate. We misunderstand. Things kind of get lost in the, in the whisper, and, and so we just start filling in the gaps. And it's important that we understand something, that God so wants the gospel to spread and for the true gospel to spread, that he has written it down and preserved it for all these years that we actually know. We don't have to debate. We don't have to wonder. We can know what the gospel is. We can know how God can be reconciled to man and man be reconciled to God because God has told us, and it's important, it's incumbent upon us, if you're a believer in Christ, that we clearly articulate the gospel that people understand it, that we don't mess it up, that we don't leave things out, that we don't add things to it, that we simply state what God has said, that we announce the good news and that we do it clearly. Because listen, understanding the gospel is the difference between heaven and hell. Listen, in, in Matthew 13, when Jesus gives the parable of the soils, Remember the story? He talks about the guy going out and sowing the seed. He's sharing the gospel. And he says, you know, the one type of soil receives it and bears fruit, multiply 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 times. That's the believer, right? And then he gives three other types of soils that looks like at some point a believer, but that really isn't. He says, for instance, they, one person receives it gladly. Boy, they, I mean, they, they, they weep and cry and pray the prayer and walk the aisle and do all those sort of things. But then when trials and difficulty and pain in life comes, they walk away from God. Another person gets it choked out by, the, by riches and by the worldly things and the love of this world just chokes it out and they never really bear fruit. Jesus is being very clear. The, there's only one of these soils that's good soil that the Holy Spirit has done a work in that bears fruit because the gospel has taken root. Only one is really getting saved. And then he gives another type. The first type, actually, he gives in Matthew 13, 19, says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Why do you care so much that we get it right? Why do, we, why do we want to articulate exactly what the gospel is, which is what we're about to do? Why is it so important? Because it doesn't matter what prayer you prayed, how many times you got dumped, how many churches you joined, how long you cried, or what. None of that matters if you don't understand the gospel. You can't believe something you don't understand. And I've been there. I've been the person that walked the aisle, that prayed the prayer, that signed the card, that got dumped and did all that and really didn't have a clue, could not communicate to you what the good news was. 
other than God loves me, pray this prayer. And that's not conversion. We have to understand the gospel. So what is it, right? What is it? What, what is the gospel? And he unpacks it in those few verses there, in verses 3 through 8. Well, first of all, we see that it centers around Christ. It's Christ who died. It's Christ who was buried. It's Christ who was risen. It's the good news about a person. It's an announcement about a person, Jesus Christ, the one whom God said he would send to crush the head of the serpent. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised the coming of the Messiah to rescue his people. Listen to this. Genesis 3.15, we saw that. Over in Genesis 12, when God chooses Abraham and says he's going to bring a people from Abraham, which we know to be Israel, God tells Abraham that there's going to be a particular offspring. A particular offspring who will conquer. A particular offspring who will come from him, from this particular people, Israel. We see Moses get raised up to help bring God's people out of slavery in Egypt. But God even promises Moses that there's going to be a greater prophet than him that's going to come along. Judah. Judah. You had Abraham, you had Isaac and Jacob, right? The granddaddy, the son, and the other, you know, boom, boom, boom. And Jacob has a son named Judah. And we're told that the scepter will not pass from Judah. So now we know that this offspring, this person, is going to come from the line of Judah. Not just from any of the 12 tribes of Israel. He will come from Judah because a scepter will not pass from Judah. He will be of that tribe. And then Israel wants a king. God gives him a king. And there's a particular king that God raises up who's after his own heart, a guy named David. And God makes a promise to David that it will be one of his descendants, that the throne will never pass from one of his descendants. And so we know the Messiah is referred to many times as the son of David. And then the New Testament announces the arrival of the Messiah when John the Baptist is declaring it. And Jesus comes on the scene saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. What's Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, the Messiah is here. The, the heaven has come crashing upon earth. The waves are rolling in. I am here. And he comes in doing miracles, showing who he is, showing his power over creation, his power over death, announcing the coming of the kingdom. The Bible reveals Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is all God, 100% God, and all man. God has become man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's important for what's happening next. For what's happening next is important that he's all God and that he's all man. He's the God-man. Then Paul says this, this Christ died for our sin, sins according to the scriptures. That's where we, the heart. This in the resurrection is the heart of the gospel. Jesus came to die. Jesus died for us and Jesus died instead of us. Jesus died in our place. Jesus stood in the gap. And the Bible makes it very clear. Jesus had no sin. He was without sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account that we might become the righteousness of God. It had to be a sinless sacrifice. Only God in the flesh could walk this earth and, earth and never sin and resist temptation like that. And only a human sacrifice could stand in the gap for us. And so in Jesus, we have the God-man coming to die for our sin, to bear the punishment we deserve, the wrath we deserve for our sin. And Paul says this was according to the scriptures. What's he talking about? He's saying this is prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. 
But he, the servant, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. That was written a long time before Jesus Christ was even born on this earth. That was written as a prophecy about what's going to happen in the future. Read Isaiah 53 sometime and then read the gospel accounts of what happened to Jesus on the cross. And be struck by how so many years before Jesus was born on this earth, how accurate this is. Because it was he died for our sins you know, according to the scriptures, just as God said he would. As our substitute, in our place. He took what we deserve so we can have what we don't deserve. A substitution took place. Jesus in our place on the cross. That is the heart of the gospel in four words. Jesus in our place. Jesus in my place. Taking the death I deserve. Taking the wrath I deserve. Bearing my sin on the cross. Bearing the punishment I deserve on the cross. The justice of God. The wrath of God coming down on Jesus so that the guilty can go free. You see, it raises the question when you read the Bible. If God is just and if God is holy, how can he ever forgive sinners? I've said this many times. Can a good judge, a just judge, just let the guilty go free? You might call him gracious, but you wouldn't call him just. People call it the riddle of the Bible. How can this happen? And Romans 3, 23 through 26 tells us this riddle is solved in Jesus. Romans 3, 23 through 26, as D.A. Carson points out, is right dead center in the middle of the Bible. It's right there. It's the heart of the Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the right time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying? He's saying Jesus dying in our place, in our stead, allows God to remain just because punishment happens for sin and at the same time to justify sinners because because punishment has happened for sin. The guilty can go free because the innocent was punished in our place. Willingly taking our place. See, Jesus didn't just die for you on the cross. Jesus died for God. Because apart from the cross, there is no way for God to remain just and be the justifier. When Jesus goes to the cross, yes, he's dying for you, but he's also dying for the very glory of God so God can redeem a people for himself. And when Jesus is on the cross, dying on the cross, he is putting forth, he is showing forth what? The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is on display when the Son of God goes to the cross. The Bible says, then Paul points out, he was buried. Why does Paul point that out? You know, we kind of skip over that part, right? But you've got to go back to their day and their age and think about this. Why would Paul point that out so clearly? Here's why I believe Paul pointed that out so clearly. In their day, they were already starting rumors that he didn't really die. He wants you to know he was, he wants to remind, he was buried. They put him behind a big old rock with Roman guards. Like there was a huge stone rolled there. 
It was sealed. The Roman seal was placed over it. He was buried. They thought they were done with him. They thought they had ended him. He was really dead, and that's important because he had to really die. Or we're all in trouble. But if he had only died, Romans 3 that we just read would have never been written. 1 Corinthians 15 would have never been written. Acts chapter 2 would have never happened. And you would not be here today singing about Jesus and opening the word of God had he only died. We would not see any connection to Isaiah 53 if he had only died. So Paul says he didn't just, he was, didn't just die, he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. <coughs> raised on the third day according to the scripture. According to what scripture? Let me point out a couple. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. It's pointing us, I believe, there to resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Psalm 16.10 In Acts, they use this to point to the prophecy of the resurrection. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, David writes, or let your Holy One see corruption. As they point out in Acts, David's body saw corruption. It wasn't about David. There is no being made right before God without the resurrection. He was raised, Romans 4 tells us, for our justification. There's no being justified before God without the resurrection. We know it's finished. We know the check didn't bounce. We know it's been paid in full because God has raised him from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he rose in victory over sin so we can be set free from it over death and all the consequences of sin and hell. Rose in victory all those, over all those things. So that's how we know we can, we can get our way out of sin and brokenness because Jesus has risen from the dead. And then he points out that he appeared. And he starts explaining all the people he appeared to. He lists names. Points out Cephas, Peter, James. He even, he even goes so far as to say, hey, there's 500 other people that he appeared to at one time, and many of them are still alive. Some of them are dead, but many of them st are still alive. What's he doing? Why is, the same way his burial tells us, listen, he really died. The appearance points out he really rose. And what Paul is saying is this, check my sources. Fact check me. This isn't fake news. You can resource this. I'm citing it. Okay? He's saying these people were still alive at this time, many of them. He's saying, go check it out. You realize the risk he's taking in doing that? Do you know why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later? Because they couldn't disprove it. Too many people had seen him. He's saying he really appeared. The gospel is the announcement that the just and holy God of the universe has done something for sinners. He has pursued us. It's not an announcement of what you can do to earn your salvation. It's not a plan for how you to get out of God what you want. It's a declaration of what's been done. What's been done. And false, dead, lifeless, sterile religion tells you what to do so that you can be made acceptable to God. The gospel tells you what God has done so that you can be accepted by God. The God, religion says, do this and you'll be received. The gospel says, you, there's nothing you can do. Look what God has done to receive you. In the gospels, it's been pointed out by others, we learn just how sinful we are and at the same time just how loved we are. There's so much balance there. It's all reconciled. It all comes together when we look at the gospel. 
But it's not enough just to know what that is. It's not enough just to hear it. You have to, number two, believe it. You need to believe the gospel. The Corinthians received this news, Paul said. They stood in it. For the gospel to change their life, they had to receive it. They had to take it in. They had to believe it. He says, he says this gospel you receive, in which you stand, verse 2, which you're being sa- by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you what? Believed in vain. So when he talks about receiving and standing and holding fast, what's he describing? Faith. Believing. The gospel must be received on God's terms, and God's terms are repent and believe, all right? Lost my marker. Got to draw again. Repent and believe. Well, you say, was it repent or believe? Here it says repent. Other places it says believe. Other places it says repent. Which one is it? It's been described this way a lot of times. It's two sides of the same coin. The reason the Bible sometimes says repent and sometimes says believe is because when it says repent, it's assuming faith. When it says faith or believe, it's assuming repentance because it's two sides of the same coin. You can't genuinely repent without believing and you can't genuinely believe without repenting. So the Bible uses them interchangeably. But for us to understand what saving faith is, we need to understand it's repent and believe. Acts 20, 21. They said they were testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is repentance? To repent means it's, a change, it's an inward change. It's a change of mind and heart. It, it's not turning over a new leaf. It's not practicing some new things. It's not starting some new habits and quitting some bad habits. It's an internal change of mind and heart that will lead to a new change of direction and change of habit. But it's internal. It's a complete 180. It's turning from your sin and unbelief to God in faith. That's exactly what it is. J.I. Packer wrote, love this quote, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God and as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. It's a continuous posture. And he says you repent and you believe is what the words Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15. It means place your faith in it. It means to trust. It means simply to take God at his word. You know, there are gifts that you receive. He says they received the gospel as passed on by him. He says you received it. There are gifts you receive that you fall away, don't care much about. You re-gift them, right? Everybody's done that, right? Just me? Okay. You re-gift them. You stick it in a closet somewhere. You probably got a shirt somewhere. It's still got a tag on it because you didn't like it or a box somewhere that hasn't been opened. Somebody gave you something for Christmas that you didn't want or didn't know how to use or whatever. And then there are gifts that you get that, like, you cherish, right? Something somebody gave you years ago that you couldn't think of partnering with. It's got this sentimental value to you or whatever, and it's, it's hidden somewhere. Or it's on display somewhere, and it means something to you, and you carry it with you through life. And that's what it means to receive the gospel. It's not some like, oh, yeah, that's cool, and then like a year or two later, you've moved on from it. You take it with you. You take it into you. You, you repent and you believe it, and you take it in, and it, you carry it with you throughout your life. He says you stand in it. He says you're standing in it. And true saving faith continues. And he says, if you hold fast, if you continue, saving faith, true faith, real repentance and faith is for the rest of your life. Because, as we've said many times, it's assuming a posture for the rest of your life. It's like if I go sit down in a chair, I've assumed a new posture, and I'm in that posture till I get up. Well, to repent and believe is to sit down, in a sense, in the gospel and to never get up. If you get up, you never really sit down. It's really that simple. It's a, it's, a, it's a lasting faith. 
And the reason you continue in it, the reason you stand in it is because God changes your life and he changes your heart. That happens at conversion. Believers are given new hearts and we have the Holy Spirit literally take up residence in our life. Listen to what Ezekiel 36 says. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. This is in the Old Testament. This is God's promise about what would happen in the new covenant with the gospel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He said, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What does he say? I'm going to take out your hard heart and give you a soft heart. I'm going to take out the heart that doesn't love me and doesn't want to obey you and I'm going to obey me and I'm going to give you a heart that loves me and wants to obey me. He goes on to say in verse 27, I'll put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Someone you say, I'm a Christian, but I just can't obey God. Baloney. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey my rules. Any Christian has the spirit of God. Any Christian can choose to obey God. When we choose not to, it's not like, oh, what was me? It's, it's a choice. It's sin. And we still struggle with that. We still do that. But we've got a new direction, a new course in our life because we have a new heart. We've been changed on the inside. Paul expressed this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, just a few chapters before this one. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you are thinking, I didn't know that was in there. In verse 11 he says, And such were some of you. Past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What's he saying? He's saying God changed you. God washed you. God cleans you. God put you on a new path. He is doing a work in you. He is flushing that stuff out of you. You're no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by your relationship to God and Christ. God changes us. You know, the Bible speaks of salvation in three tenses. I was saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. We say this a lot around here. If you're not being saved... It's because you weren't saved and you're not going to be saved. It's three tenses. We believe, we continue to believe, and God changes us more and more. We struggle, we fail, we mess up, and God just continues to work. And we repent, we continue to walk in faith, and one day we experience glory. Paul says to them, you are being saved. It's by this gospel that you are being saved, present tense. Sanctification, we call it. Spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. Becoming more like Jesus. He's saying, it's by this gospel that you're becoming more like Jesus. New people with new hearts live a new way. They go a new direction. And what is happening is we begin to recover and pursue God's design. Recover and pursue God's changed our heart here when we believe the gospel and now we continue to walk in it and we begin to change and we begin to desire to do what God says do and to do things the way God wants us to do them and to obey God. We begin to obey Him by faith. And as we recover and pursue God's design, we're becoming more and more like Christ. And we don't do that by moving away from the gospel. We do that by continuing to apply the gospel and walk in it. That's why Paul says... When he wants to deal with the attitude problems in the church in Philippians, in Philippi, 
He looks at them and he says, in Philippians 2, he talks to them about their attitude, and then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes through and he shows them the attitude of Christ in Philippians 2 that took Christ to the cross, humbly how he went to the cross, and humbly how he obeyed even to the point of death. What's he saying? He's saying, you want to get a better attitude? Gaze at the gospel. Look at the gospel. Apply the gospel. That's why when Paul wants to talk to us about forgiving others, something sometimes it's hard to do, in Colossians 3.13, he says, Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. What's he doing? He points us to the gospel. When, God, when, when Paul wants to say, Hey, you want victory over sexual temptation? In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Listen, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. What's he do? He reminds us of the gospel. All of it. It's about appropriating the gospel into our life. When he, when he talks to us about marriage, he looks at husbands and he says, you want a ma better marriage? Love your wife like Christ loved the church, giving himself for her, laying down his life for her. And all through the Bible, all through the New Testament, you see that. As we recover and pursue God's design, it's whole, it's, we're walking in the gospel, applying the gospel, gazing at the gospel, looking at the gospel, holding to the gospel in faith, and repenting of things in our life that are not gospel-like, that are not gospel-shaped. That are not God, that that don't express gospel clarity, that don't show gospel impact, that are ungospel. And what God is doing is He is making us more like Jesus. Let me ask you, like the Corinthians, have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Are you resting today in what you've done or what Christ did? Have you believed the gospel? That's the most important thing I can ask you today. Has it changed your life? And if it has, if you're a believer today, and if it has, number three, you need to share the gospel. In verse three, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul said, this is the most important thing I've ever heard. It's the most important thing in the Bible. It's the most important thing I could tell you. So it was delivered to me. I took it in. I believed it. And now I've handed it off to you. And that is the job not just of apostles and pastors and ministers. It is the job of every Christian to take what we have received and pass it on to others. Why? Because it's of first importance. There is nothing more important that we can share. Dads, there's nothing more important than you can pass on to your children than the gospel. A good work ethic? Sure. Importance of good stewardship and generosity? Sure. The importance of, of being, what, being a, a solid young man or a, a godly young woman. All those things are important things. But the most important thing that we pass on to our children is the gospel. The most important thing we share with our spouse is the gospel. The most important thing we share with our neighbor is the gospel. It's a first importance. I heard Dr. Al Mohler say this week, if the message of the gospel is true, that it's immoral not to share it. Think about that. If all of this is true, if this is true and God's design and sin and the brokenness we're experiencing, all that's true. And if God has literally made a way for people to be forgiven of sin, to be reconciled to God and to not suffer for their sin, if all that's true, how can we not share it? As people who have believed the gospel and are recovering and pursuing his design, God sends us back into a broken world to take that message of the gospel to people that need to hear it. You are God's missionary. You are God's strategy. You are God's five-point plan for reaching your sphere of influence with the gospel. There are people in your life that nobody else is even thinking about sharing the gospel with but you. 
I guarantee it. Because people don't think about sharing the gospel. And there are people that, that you think about and you wonder, I wonder if anybody else, maybe, maybe not, but there's probably some people that nobody else is praying for or thinking about. You say, it'd be great if God sent somebody to talk to them. It's you. It's you. It's me. It's us. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think. It's us. And he has sent us to share the gospel. Now, here's some ways that we want to help you and us, all of us, get more serious about sharing the gospel as we close this series. First off, next week's Easter. There's not a better time. I saw a statistic the other day. I don't know where they got it from. It was on the Internet. It's got to be true. That something like 80% of people respond favorably if they're invited to an Easter service. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know this. There are people that if you invite them, they'll come. There's people that if you invite them, they won't come. I know that. I've seen that. I've experienced that. But there's people that if you invite them, they will come. Who can you invite? I can promise you this. Lord willing, I'll be the person standing up here and get to share the message on Easter Sunday at both of our services, and I make a promise to you that if that's me, the gospel will be shared. They will be given an opportunity to repent and believe, but I can't invite them all. Will you invite? That's one thing you can do. Commit to being here. Commit to inviting. And then number two, Three Circles training starts in two weeks. We want to help you, help us, learn to better and more adequately share our faith. You say, well, I don't go to Sunday school or I'm not in a small group. I'm asking you for the next six weeks. If you're a member of North Park, for you to commit to doing that for six weeks. You can do anything for six weeks. If you're not a member of North Park, I'm inviting you to come on this journey with us. What a better way to get to know and to get connected. I'm inviting everyone to join with us in two weeks as we begin this six weeks journey of learning how to better share our faith. So, well, I don't really like this strategy. Okay, use something else. The one circle is the main thing that I want us to grasp and to start sharing with people. Just share the gospel. Use whatever tool God's put in your hand. Use your testimony. But just talk about Jesus. We've got to turn more everyday conversations into gospel conversations if we want to see people come to faith in Christ. Let me ask you, what do you need to do today? Maybe today you need to repent and believe the gospel. If that's you, I want to encourage you. I want to invite you to repent and believe. If you're a believer today, I want to ask you, who do you need to be praying about sharing the gospel with? Would you spend some time in prayer right now and pray for those people and pray for boldness to share? Who do you need to invite? Who do you need to pray for for Easter? Let's pray.